Hello, you are listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming none other than Ken Ramirez to the podcast. Welcome Ken! Well thank you Hazel, glad to be here. I am so excited to sit down and talk to you and you know you're an absolute veteran of the field of animal training but for any of my listeners who maybe aren't animal trainers or are new to the field, could you give yourself a brief introduction? Uh, sure. I have been working in the field for coming close to 50 years now. I started when I was uh, quite young. I was in uh, in high school when I began volunteering at a guide dog organization, and that's sort of what sparked my fascination and interest with training. I was really impressed with a guide dog's ability to uh, learn intelligent disobedience and learn concepts. And that just intrigued me. And I thought to myself, what better job than playing with dogs all day long and uh, doing it for a noble purpose. Uh, but then as I went to college, I went to university and started studying behavior. I had an opportunity to get a job working at a marine life park in Texas. And it turns out that so much of what I had done and learned about working with guide dogs was very similar to the kind of work being done with marine mammals and other exotic animals. And so I sort of stumbled into a position working with uh, dolphins and whales and sea lions at a, at a very early age. I was still finishing uh, my uh, college years, uh, but I took that job, thought I would do that for a couple years before moving to the guide dog world. But then I became very fascinated with the zoological training and I had an opportunity to work with quite a few terrestrial animals as well and really sparked my interest and then I got an opportunity to travel and do similar kind of work overseas in a variety of different locations and before I knew it I was just so immersed in the the training world um, that I started doing uh, being asked to consult and uh, and began working what it was has been a pretty long career working in the zoo and aquarium field. Meanwhile, uh, I came back to the dog world about 20 years ago doing consulting. It turns out that many of the working dog programs throughout the country were very interested uh, in seeing if they could transition to entirely positive reinforcement, but they, they weren't sure how. And so uh, I began working with law enforcement agencies, with guide dog organizations, with service dog organizations, with search and rescue organizations. And I sort of took a parallel path where while working full time as a consultant and uh, trainer in the zoo and aquarium world, also began doing the same thing with uh, professional dog trainers and trying to help them transition to using positive reinforcement more effectively. So I've had quite a diverse career as a trainer. Meanwhile, I was hired by uh, Western Illinois University uh, quite a ways back to teach a graduate course on, on animal training. Uh, and currently I am with uh, Karen Pryor Clicker Training, where I oversee the vision and mission of our educational programming and uh, sort of taken her role, Karen Pryor's role, as uh, 
the educational voice for her organization and trying to help move that organization in a, in a good direction. So that's just, that's my, my career in a nutshell. I, I I've got more things that I can tell you about, but that's sort of what I, what I, what I do and who I am. Yes, you're an absolute wealth of knowledge. You know, there's not a single person in our industry, I think, that doesn't know your name. You know, the, the majority of us have your books on our bookshelves and use your, your textbooks um, in our daily training lives. But if we're going to go back to when you first started working with marine mammals specifically and taking what you had learned about training from working with dogs, what did training look like for you in those early years and how did you go about developing it? Well, yeah, it's a very good question. And for me, I was uh, I was still rather new to training. I actually didn't come to a full knowledge of behavior analysis from a uh, an educational perspective until much later. I, I first started with a immersive hands-on role and only after having done it for a long time, did I realize that, uh, uh, that there was a real science behind it all. But I think for my early years, because I got started working with guide dogs, at that time, guide dogs were still trained in a more traditional method. In other words, they used plenty of positive reinforcement, but if an animal uh, misbehaved, if the animal uh, got distracted, there would be what they used to call at the time corrections were used to sort of get that animal back on track. And because I was young and just starting out of the training field, it didn't occur to me that there was any other way that you just, you reinforced behavior you wanted and you punished behavior you didn't want. Mm -hmm. And then when I started working in the marine mammal field, I was surprised to find that the, that the marine mammals were trained using entirely positive reinforcement and we weren't allowed to use punishment and 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 I was fascinated by the fact that we were still able to get great behavior and that we never had to to punish the animals and for the longest time I almost feel foolish now having thought this but for the longest time I thought oh so you have to use punishment with domestic animals but with exotic animals you don't and in my brain, because you only know what you've been taught, you don't mm -hmm. necessarily know outside your own world. I just believed that I had to use punishment with with dogs and cats and horses, and that with exotic animals, you could use you could get away with just using positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And I probably was in the field for two, maybe three years before I realized what a foolish idea that was, and realized. And I think it was because of the fact that I was working with so many different species. I was working with not only dolphins, whales, and sea lions and seals, but I was also working with big cats. I was also working with um, primates. I was also working with reptiles like turtles. And I don't remember exactly where it was, but there was at some point that I was working with, I believe it was a giant Aldabra tortoise. And I was thinking to myself, he was doing some unwanted behavior. And I was looking at some kind of a redirection procedure, some way to direct him toward my desired behavior. Mm -hmm. And I thought it, but it was the first time that I thought to myself, wow, if this was my dog, I would have brought out some kind of a correction tool. And I thought, oh my goodness, my dog can do what a turtle can do, uh, a tortoise can do. There's no reason that the, and I started realizing that my bias about domestic animals was just 
wrong. I just hadn't ever thought about it in, in, in another way. And I'd never been taught another way. And I almost felt foolish at the time when I suddenly started realizing that the dogs didn't have to be trained that way. Um, and, uh, and so for me, it was a very different world. That was in the 1970s that I was working in, 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 in just getting started with marine mammals. And, and it was a brand new world for me because uh, the marine mammal world had just begun to cooperate uh, organizations like the International Marine Animal Trainers Association, IMATA, had just begun forming. It had formed in the early 70s. Uh, I became a member only after I'd been in the marine mammal field for a couple of years. So it was in the later 1970s that I became a member of that organization. And I remember the first time I went to a conference and saw people uh, putting a tube down a, a, a dolphin's into a dolphin's mouth and into their stomach to get a gastric sample or watching them take a dolphin's tail and be able to take a blood sample. And it just blew my mind mm. because I hadn't heard of that before. I hadn't seen that done before. You know, today, I think most modern trainers are very aware that medical behaviors are easily trained in something that we do with all animals, but it wasn't common back then. It was just a new trend that we were learning about when we would go to conferences mm. like the IMATA conference. And, uh, and so it was a really excellent period of growth for me as a young trainer, uh, first thrust into the world of marine mammals, thrust into the world of positive reinforcement, educated in a dog training, uh, uh, uh guide dog school to start with, uh, and then sort of kind of blindly trying to figure out my own way to what was the the best way to train and mm. where could I learn more and I was really bitten by the training bug as I began to grow and I went back to school learned more began seeing the connection between all training and realized suddenly that gosh this applies to people as well and this applies <laughs> to dogs and this applies to horses and this applies mm. and I I just became very aware of the scientific basis that training had. And that intrigued me even further because then I realized, gosh, these are laws of learning that apply to all animals. And yet I always saw that as I would go to from zoo to, to aquarium, to dog training, to horse training, I would see those individuals didn't make the connection either. They, 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 you know, I did something with the dolphin. People would say, well, that's a dolphin. You can't do that with a tiger. Or I would do something with a dog and they go, well, that's a dog. You can't do that with an eagle. And so I saw that many people had the same biases or roadblocks or visual mental barriers that I had. And I realized it was because you don't, you don't know what you don't know and you don't yeah. necessarily explore something if you don't if no one's ever shown it to you or told it to you mm. so it was a the 70s and 80s was a very exciting time for me as i just kept drinking in the knowledge and and i just couldn't get enough new classes and books and information that i could where i could learn and and so it was a it was a very it's a very different time back then but it was a very uh, enjoyable time for me because it was it was it formed what I am today and the kind of career that I have taken in uh, in in my life has been formed by that 
youthful exploration that went on for me at an early age. Looking for the perfect marine mammal-themed Christmas gift for your loved one? Or wanting to treat yourself this holiday season? Then you have to check out Terry Miller Custom Tales Jewelry. Their customized pendants are recreations of your favorite whaler dolphin's tail in sterling silver or gold. They will design by hand a custom tail to look exactly like the flukes of your favorite flippered friend. I have worn my Skyla flukes for almost five years now and I could not recommend them highly enough. Wanting a pendant of a different species? No problem! Send Terry an inquiry email to terry at customtailsjewelry.com or check out their website www.customtailsjewelry.com Yeah, and I think you make such a good point about you don't know what you don't know and that's why it's so important even nowadays to not just attend conferences but talk to other trainers you know within your facility in different facilities and get different opinions you know I say all the time there's no room for ego in training you know if you don't know how to solve a problem odds are there's someone out there that knows or can help you so how important do you think you know for instance the conferences are but just you know keeping that network of connections with other trainers alive it's a critical component to being a good trainer. Um, you know, the the thing that I have discovered in my nearly 50 years as a trainer, the more you learn, the more you become aware of what you don't know. And all mm. of a sudden, thinking to my, yourself, oh, my goodness, there's this whole world out there that that I might not have ever been exposed to. And so it even if you were a lifelong learner learner and very open-minded about things, there's no way you can learn about it all. You know, there's there's species that you haven't encountered, there's problems that you haven't had to fix. And so being able to network, being able to have a group of colleagues, friends, other trainers that you can reach out to is critical. And so that's why I attend as many conferences as I do because it allows me to meet new people. Um, I was at a conference fairly recently, uh, just just uh, last month, and I remember thinking to myself, every single presentation that I went to, I was able to walk away with some new nugget of knowledge, mm. some new way of looking at training, some different perspective that I hadn't had before. And it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to take all of those and start using those new ideas immediately, but it just continues to stretch my imagination and yeah. keeps me thinking about new ways of looking at things. And so uh, to me, that networking is is critical. And, and for me, that networking has come from not only people and friends that I've worked with over the years, but even more so the huge network of people that I've met by attending a variety of different conferences and getting to know people who work in the field. Because um, that makes it easier to pick up the phone or pick up your your text or email somebody and say, hey, I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you ever seen this before? Or how would you handle this kind of situation? Um, it's, uh, it's a great it's a great network of people that are out there. And, and, and I tend to find that in our community, people are very willing to share, very, very oh, willing to, to give out information and tell you what they have done and let you know uh, how they've handled situations in the past. Mm -hmm. And, and I think those are, that's one of the best ways to, to get new ideas and, and troubleshoot and, and, and explore. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, if we use each other's knowledge, it's only going to be to the benefit um, of the animals at the end of the day. And, you know, your career has spanned almost five decades, which is incredible. So, you know, the amount of things that you've seen, the amount of growth that you've seen within the industry, talking specifically about training, what are some of the most important breakthroughs or the best improvements in training that you think you've seen? You know, it's it's hard. You know, it's interesting because oftentimes when I see something that I consider a breakthrough, it might be something that some facilities have been doing for for years. I just wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's always hard to know what a true breakthrough is. But I certainly can look at trends that I see in the community. And, and one of the trends that that I think has been huge, of course, starts with the idea that that using positive reinforcement, um, because even in the zoo world where training is more common today, you still find that there are many zoos that don't fully embrace training, that don't mm. recognize the value of training. Um, <clears throat> I found that in my career, I'm always dealing with people who feel like somehow training is unnatural as opposed to realizing that training is just teaching and learning. And animals learn 24 hours a day. They learn 24 hours a day when they're in the wild. They learn 24 hours a day when they're in our care. And so all we are doing as trainers is helping facilitate that learning, helping them to learn things that can help them have a better quality of life, helping to Mm -hmm. improve welfare, helping them to, to navigate the world that they're living in. And so for me, that is still an ongoing uh, struggle but one that I have seen greatly change. I believe, for example, in the pet community, we wouldn't see 9 million pets euthanized every year in the United States alone if people understood when they adopted a pet that training was going to be an important part of that. And so that's one of the big things that I've seen, breakthroughs that I've seen. Another one that I have seen in more recent years, in the last 10, 20 years, has been the idea of giving animals agency over the choices that they make and and recognizing that um, that you can actually increase an animal's welfare and increase their enjoyment of what they learn from you when you give them actual options of mm-hmm. of choices of 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 what they want to do and that's something that is still is still a relatively new thing in our field i think often when people think about training they're thinking about this is a way that i can get an animal to do what i want it to do mm-hmm. and while certainly training affords you that potential one of the biggest breakthroughs, in my opinion, has been the idea of letting animals choose whether to participate or not. And a big part of being a trainer is making the choices that you'd like them to make mm-hmm. more enjoyable for them, more reinforcing for them, so that they want to choose the direction that you'd like them to choose, as opposed to forcing them in that direction. And I think that has been a big, a big uh, change choice we've had um dr dudinsky and dr hill um on the podcast both separately um and i was very lucky to be involved in their innovate studies and we've spoken about it before but i always think it's very worthwhile to bring up you know such positive 
um, observations that we had of the animals that were given choice to do what they wanted in session, you know, the, the amount of engagement that we saw from them, the amount of motivation that we saw from them, the fact that we were doing test sessions of 20 minutes and the animals didn't even want primary reinforcement. They found the sessions themselves so reinforcing. So I love that you brought it up because if you hadn't talked about choice, I was I was going to talk about it um, later anyway, because it's my one of my favorite areas at the moment in training is giving um, animals agency over their own environment and more autonomy in their lives. Um, and I think, you know, I'm so excited to see where that part of training goes in the future. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. I think that uh, it's as you look back at the historical direction training has come, there's actually been many, many, many examples of us as trainers giving animals choice early on, but I think it's become a more focused and far more integrated part of a lot of the programs that we see today. And so that's, you're asking about breakthroughs that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's those two things that I've mentioned so far that have been major innovations. I think there've been a lot of other breakthroughs, uh, but those are probably the two big ones. Oh yeah, for sure. And I also love that you you spoke a little bit about the importance of training just in general with mental stimulation and making sure our animals, you know, are learning continuously. I know there's a big discussion these days, it's more so with the general public, but also, you know, within our field about what types of behaviors we should be training with our animals and saying, well, if a behavior isn't 100% naturalistic, should we be training it? What's uh, your view on that? Well, first of all, I think it would be very, I would, I would challenge somebody to define what 100% naturalistic means. I think that when you watch, let's just talk about animals in the wild. When you watch animals, you see great diversity in behavior. Um, if you're looking at oceanic animals and dolphins, for example, the behavior of pelagic dolphins that live far from shore is very different from animals that live in estuaries and that live in, in shallow water. Uh, you also find that elephants, for example, because I'm doing a lot of work with elephants right now, um, a lot of behavior that you see in elephants, elephants that live in vast open savannas where there are very, very few people or encounters with humans, that behavior is very different from animals that live in jungly, much more uh, not uh, in, 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 in areas that are populated with more trees, but still no people. What the point I'm making is that even though people are not impacting their behavior, the behavior of these animals changes dramatically depending upon the environment that they are in. So. I would really challenge someone to really give me a good definition of what 100% naturalistic is, because if you watch animals in nature, their behavior is quite flexible. They adapt to the environment they're around. Um, so I find it difficult to, 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 to be able to really understand. I know what they're trying to say. Uh, I think, for example, um, the, the old circus tricks that you often see animals do, you know, where uh, a lion jumps through a flaming hoop of fire, uh, that would be something that when someone say that's not natural. Um, and I would agree, you just animals aren't usually jumping through flaming fire in the wild. And so I understand that concern that mm -hmm. people have or, or watching a bear dance on a balance on a ball wearing a little tutu mm -hmm. those kinds of things are the things that 
make people think of training in a bad light. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and I don't necessarily think that 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 was necess is necessarily a bad thing. It just is. It certainly isn't natural, and it mm -hmm. isn't the kind of thing that I would want to promote people doing. Um, but that's a full spectrum of things. And and what I would say is, for me, what I look at is is what I want to is for me training is really about being able to provide mental stimulation, physical exercise, teach those cooperative behaviors that help us care for them better, that helps these animals live wherever they live more in a more healthful, more welfare driven state. Mm. And sometimes that means being able to teach them things that are totally unnatural for example, when uh, when um, an animal is in need of veterinary care and we teach a, a dog to give us their paw so that we can look at the health of the pads mm -hmm. of their feet, when we teach a dolphin to give us its tail so that we can take a blood sample, when we teach an animal to uh, put its uh, chest up against, uh, 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 against a barrier so that we can listen to its heart rate, none of those in and of themselves are natural behaviors yet we do them in an effort to try to care for the animal better and so i think that um there, there's often too much emphasis put on natural behavior and 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 what i think the emphasis should be put on is are we doing things that assist in the welfare of that animal it's going to help this animal live a healthier and better life wherever it is whether that's an animal that is that is in the wild or an animal that is in human care, in both cases, we have to be stewards of this earth. And whether we whether we have a right to or not, we impact the world in great in a in, in a dramatic ways, whether it mm -hmm. be through the use of 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 tearing down habitats because we've created roads and highways and cities and villages and towns, or whether it be the pollutants that we put into the earth. All, all animals are affected by people and by the things that we have done. And because of that, we often are in need of helping them. Like I am work currently working on a project in, in Africa in which I'm working through in the, with the Zambian government on helping wild elephants avoid poachers. And that's not natural. There's nothing natural about trying to change an elephant's migration pattern, but we're doing it because mm -hmm. these elephants are migrating through a country that doesn't have good poacher protection laws. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, we need to use our knowledge of behavior to help change their behavior that will help save their lives. And so um, there's nothing natural about that, but I just... For me, I think the issue becomes one of we are living in a world that is no longer natural. We have mm. a world that has pollutants in the air and pollutants in the water and trees being cut down. And so animals in the wild are having to adapt to things that people have done. And so I think if we are able to help in ways that teach them behavior, that help them navigate this world more effectively then that's a worthwhile endeavor to be a part of. And having the knowledge of shaping and changing behavior is a marvelous thing because we can do it in ways that provide such benefit to the animals that we're caring for.
and I'm sorry, I sort of went in a lot of different directions. It's a difficult, it's often a difficult question when people ask <laughs> about what, you know, this is the only thing that an animal should be able to yeah. do is this thing that they call natural behavior. And, and I think, uh, you know, the single most, one of the breakthroughs that we didn't get to when we were talking about breakthroughs is the idea that animals can be taught to participate in their own care, that we can mm. take blood samples, that we can that we can listen to their heart rate, that we can do all of these things that directly benefit the individual animal. Hardly any medical behavior would be considered natural, mm -hmm. yet we do them because it helps us give our animals better, longer lives. Our pets today wouldn't be living the longer lives that they, you know, we have geriatric dogs and cats now that, that what wasn't a thing of the past because before modern medicine, these animals didn't live that long. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, I think if we wanted everything to go back to, to nature and the way that it used to be, well, people wouldn't live into their 30s and 40s, they would be dying in their 20s. And there would, you know, there's it, how do you turn the clock back and mm -hmm. say, we want everything to be back the way it used to be? Well, what point in time do we want to turn the clock back to? And even if we really could do that, why would we, you know, it would be a hard thing to do. Yeah. So I think we're, it's a very difficult and complex question you ask when you ask about uh, natural behaviors, because I know what people mean by it, but I don't know that it's easy to really define. And I love that you went so deep into it because it really is such an overarching question. And the reason I ask is because, you know, from my, my years as a trainer, and also I have so many friends that are, are still working in the field and, you know, they feel so much pressure, whether that's from, you know, activist organizations, governing bodies, their own facility trying to say, you know, you should train this, but you shouldn't train this. And there's so many discrepancies now, depending on where someone works with regards to the laws of their country, with regards to the laws of their state on what they can and cannot do. And it's creating this environment for trainers where I feel that it's becoming very difficult for them to do their jobs effectively. It can be. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I understand there's, there are, there are many, many rules and laws that govern what you can and can't do. Some are welfare rules. Some are, are, are just misguided rules that, that, that people believe are important. And I think that's unfortunate. Then I think sometimes we often have rules and laws that are developed to deal with the lowest common denominator. In other words, when you look at the world, there are there are good trainers and there are bad trainers, just like there are good teachers and there are bad teachers. There are good lawyers, there are bad lawyers, good doctors, bad doctors. And sadly, much about government legislation is often implemented to deal with the lower bad of these, because these bad players are doing things in a bad way, let's put a law in place that will keep them from being able to do that. But often those same laws end up impacting everybody. And, um, and that's unfortunate that, mm. that we have those kinds of rules and policies in place. And, and I certainly understand them. I understand, for example, in a, in a modern zoo, there's this desire for uh, an exhibit to be natural. And when when and when and when we ask what natural means, they're looking at it from the standpoint of education. When our guests come 
and view the animals in this habitat. We'd like the guests to be able to see trees that are similar to the kinds of trees that this animal might be exposed to in the wild. Mm -hmm. We want them to see a, a, an exhibit, a space that helps them not only learn about the animal, but learn about the environment that it comes from. And so for that reason, when zookeepers are coming up with enrichment items, they have to devise enrichment items that look like they're a part of that scene, that are a part of that natural landscape. And there's nothing wrong with that, but understand that that is for educational purposes. That's the reason that that rule is there when realistically that animal might have benefited from some kind of an enrichment that isn't natural at all, but allows them to exhibit natural type behavior. Yeah. And, uh, and But because the rules of that particular zoo state that you cannot put something that doesn't look like it belongs naturally in that exhibit, uh, it, it limits those keepers from being able to use what could be very creative types of enrichment mm. But I understand it. It's a balance that mm -hmm. we have to face because we want to educate people. Absolutely. And uh, so we, we may have to. So in, in places like that, I always suggest, well, maybe you can do these unnatural kinds of enrichment after hours or at other times mm -hmm. of the day. That's really the main goal. You make sure that, there, that that enrichment is removed before the public comes in so that you maintain that 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 educational image that you want to display, but for the welfare of the animal, it might be beneficial if you could put in other kinds of enrichment that might help them in a very positive, product, productive way. So I think it's it's really understanding what your goals are and why those rules are there. So Ken, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. I know that everyone listening is going to learn so much from this. So thank you very much. Thank you, Hazel. Pleasure being here. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe, and I will catch you guys next week.